Nation country. My name is Phil. This is the Fun with Bitcoin podcast. We are in season three, and this is episode seven. So I hope everybody's having a great week. I know this episode is coming out a little bit late, but trust me, it's well worth it. I sat down and spoke with Francis Puglio. And for those of you who are not in the Bitcoin space prior to 2018, uh, you may not be very familiar with Francis, but um, Francis is uh, from, let's say, from 2013 on heavily involved in Bitcoin. And when I first got into the space, more specifically, when I first got onto Bitcoin Twitter and, you know, you're, you're looking at the uh, all the different voices and the signal and the noise. Well, let me tell you something. This guy cuts through and uh, <laughs> you can see that not only is he signal, but it's the it's the way that um, I guess it's the way that he crafts his tweets and the way that he explains things like you can. I mean, the frickin passion just pushes out right through the text. Anyways, I'm not going to drag on about this. Um, I, I really uh, I, I really enjoy Francis's work and uh, I look forward to seeing what comes uh, comes out of him in the future. So anyways, um, without further ado, here is my amazing discussion with Francis Puglio. All right, everybody. Thank you very much for joining me on the Fun with Bitcoin podcast. I've got somebody that's joining me that's um, somebody I started following very early on in Twitter. Uh, this was actually even before I became a full, you know, quote unquote, Bitcoin maximalist. Um, I, I was still shitcoining and I would read this person's posts and they would absolutely always get me to think every time. It, it was just the, you know, the intelligence behind it and the message. I'm talking about Francis Puglio. Francis, thank you so much for joining me on my podcast, man. I really appreciate it. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks so, so much for having me. So, um, Francis, I, I, I really see you as like a, a very um, like a very important uh, figure, at least in, in terms of um, Bitcoin's, um, I'd say like the, 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 the social aspect and also even the um, ki- kind of like the, the ideals and philosophy. But you know, before we talk about that stuff, I, I want to talk about your, your rabbit hole story, man. I, I want to know how you got into Bitcoin. Yeah, um, it's actually a pretty crazy story. And uh, it's like, I, 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 I tell that story uh, a lot. And then every time I tell it, I'm just, <laughs> you know, it's, it kind of gets me emotional. Uh, so I, I got into Bitcoin. You know, a lot of people know I've been uh, Bitcoin for a while. I got into Bitcoin, uh, like beginning of 2013. And at the time, I had just finished uh, my master's degree in London, UK, and I, and I moved back to Montreal. And then during my master's degree, um, I became very libertarian, like, you know, Austrian economist, quite, I was always kind of a revolutionary type person. My background's in political science. When I was younger, I was uh, kind of a social justice warrior, uh, activist, which, you know, people see my Twitter feed now, they would not believe because I'm a fairly conservative guy, but <laughs> I, used be, I used to be very left-wing, you know, save the world, uh, UN, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. I was, I was always kind of like uh, in love with the re- revolutionary mindset. I had like a Ma- Mao Zedong t-shirt, like That's USSR awesome. belt. Yeah, you know, I was, the- I was your typical protest attending, you know, teenager. And then um, I... I studied uh, politics in uh, in the UK, and then uh, I read Atlas Shrugged, which is kind of a you know cliche, I guess. Uh, but I was lucky enough to uh, find myself in a, a university program at a very very good university, King's College, where the professors were actually Austrian economists, and um, I studied you know Hayek, Mises, 
um, you know, Novak and all sorts of uh, anarchist philosophers when I was there. And then I became very, very libertarian and very convinced of the libertarian decentralization mindset through Hayek specifically, which was, you know, my, my main influence intellectually. And then I came back to Montreal and I didn't know really what to do. And I, and I got a job as an economic analyst. I, I worked in economists um, and uh, I would, you know, uh, I worked for a free market think tank analyzing economic policies. So I would spend my days like researching government policies and trying to, I guess, find flaws in them and suggest little improvements here and there, where, how we can make, you know, the economy more efficient through free market mechanisms and principles and um you know not only was the nine to five job kind of killing me but also my job was to vulgarize mostly vulgarizing free market economic concepts to the public and my audience was journalists you know into other intellectuals um we weren't really communicating to the masses that much we were communicating more to like journalists and you know that kind of intermediate intermediary class and uh, trying to vulgarize these concepts and, and make them compelling. And um, through that process, I needed to write you know, um, in the media, I needed to participate in debates. And then I, I got involved with student groups that were um, uh, fighting against the, the socialist protests that were going on in Montreal at the time. The, for those in Montreal that, that you know, the few people in Montreal that remember the Red Square protests, I was uh, part of the Green Square movement that was the free market movement among the student unions and stuff like that. And then I just could not see us ever winning. I, I just could not see the system ever changing through incremental small changes. So, you know, I started hmm. to work in, in economics and to do these small incremental steps, you know, convincing people one issue at a time that, you know, a little bit less taxes, a little bit less regulation. And then eventually, if you convince people over time, then it's going to slowly get better. And I just felt felt very, very disillusioned. And then at the same time, during that time, I became I started hanging out with libertarian circles and going to libertarian meetups. And then I, I met these, this guy, um, which was very, very hardcore libertarian, but he was the smartest guy I had ever met, right? Like he was a, you know, systems and um, computer engineer that worked in finance, uh, you know, classical musician, kind of a very smart guy. And I was very impressed with that guy. And he taught me a lot about economics and he really, you know, was kind of a zero hedge type figure. Um, and in those days, I was kind of a more of a traditional conservative. I wasn't really into the, the internet libertarian circles. I was not at all tech savvy. Uh, when I was very, very young, I got into torrenting very early, but apart from torrenting, I was not at all like a computer guy. Um, and then he just, we, we didn't talk about Bitcoin for a while, uh, but eventually he starts to talk to me about Bitcoin. And I was like, it surely is not like, it surely, like everyone, it surely must be a scam. And it surely cannot work. <laughs> like, like every single person that hears about Bitcoin the first time. But in my case, he was so smart. And I was kind of like, you know, I had this kind of bro crush on this guy um, <laughs> and, and he was very adamant and he was telling me specifically, like, I know you're not going to get it. You just have to trust me. OK, I know what's best for you. you you're a Bitcoiner, Francis. Like, 
I know it's hard to I, I know it's hard to believe, but you're a Bitcoiner and you're gonna make you know Bitcoin your life. Just trust me. Like buy some Bitcoin and get into it right now. And I was like, okay, sure. Like I was like, you know, normally if someone that you really trust is telling you, hey, I wouldn't ever say that to anyone else, but you should be in Bitcoin and Bitcoin needs you and I want you to have Bitcoin because I want you to be rich. So I got into Bitcoin uh, with this guy and then I didn't really understand it. But even though I was an economist, I didn't really have any knowledge of monetary economics because you don't learn that in university. Even it's unbelievable to most people, but even as an economist, you don't learn monetary economics at all. It's just a, it's just a given. The Keynesian economic system, yeah. the fiat, the fiat system is just a given. It's just the, it's just the premise of the whole textbook is that, you know, it started out with fiat economics and then, you know, you, you work your way up from there on interest rates and trade and, and, you know, unemployment and all that kind of stuff and, and regulation. But the premise of fiat economics by which I mean, you know, fiat central banking that we all know and fractional reserve banking is never questioned. And then, so I started to, to, to get more into that. Um, and um, that guy ended up eventually becoming the founder of something called the Bitcoin embassy, which was the world's first ever physical Bitcoin hub. Um, it was a 14,000 square foot space in Montreal. So like four stories high on the corner of Saint Laurent Street and Sherbrooke Street. So for those of you who are not in Montreal, this is pretty much as no central way. as you can get. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, uh, yeah, yeah. So you're from Montreal. That's or, just, yeah. Originally, oh, yes. Was I supposed to say that? Did oh, that's okay. You? Oh, no, not at all. Because oh. I, I don't live there now, but uh, I've already doxed myself plenty of times. Oh, okay. Sorry about that. <laughs> it's okay. Um, so so it, it, it was this like dope, massive building. Um, and then uh, the the owner of that building actually was a Bitcoiner. My friend, um, the one I was talking about, which I'm not going to dox, uh, is, uh, was, also, <laughs> was also a Bitcoiner. And then there was another guy that was also a Bitcoiner. And then like these three guys were early, early Bitcoiners, you know, like 2010, 2011 Bitcoiners. And then they decided to create this kind of physical space for Bitcoiners. Um, and um, I helped, you know, I was hanging, I, I was friends with these guys. So I was just hanging around while I was working as an economist. So I was hanging around the Bitcoin embassy. They started to do the meetups. So I started to attend the meetups. And then, you know, I, I'm pretty good at talking. I'm pretty good at writing and, uh, uh, you know, being, um, a, I guess, a spokesperson. So I, I started to help organize a meetup, you know, emceeing, that kind of stuff. And then eventually we actually, um, I had the idea, I say, hey, we should convince my, my boss at the, uh, I was working at the Montreal Economic Institute. So we should convince my, my bosses at the Montreal Economic Institute to do a research on Bitcoin. Because, you know, it, at the time, Roger Veer had just made a very substantial donation to the um, Foundation for Economic Education, the FEE. So I was like, oh, I told the Montreal Economic Institute, hey, like we should write about Bitcoin. You know, these Bitcoin guys are all libertarians and they're going to have tons of money one day. So if we write about Bitcoin now, maybe we'll get donations from them in the future. So everybody thought it was a pretty good idea. So I started to write um, two reports on Bitcoin, which are published now. I mean, so this was very forward thinking. I mean, this was 2013, like summer of 2013. So this was um, a legit... This is like Canada's most prestigious think tank, basically, writing these two reports on Bitcoin. 
and I was tasked to be the obviously the researcher to do the research on Bitcoin. And then I was already obviously very susceptible to to Bitcoin, but I was kind of like a Roger Ver type at the time, you know, like, oh, Bitcoin, you know, fuck the state. It's fast and free. Um, and, you know, it's digital and it's great. You know, I wasn't really that interested in the um, in the economics of it. I was just interested in the fact that it was a big fuck you to the government. So I was very sh- I was very shallow. I was a very shallow early Bitcoiner. Um, like I was, you know, like Roger Ver, you know, very shallow, doesn't really understand it. But, you know, he, he understands that it's against the government and that's that's all you need. But then when I started to do my research, I started to try to answer questions that I knew other people were going to ask, such as, so why is there only 21 million? And, you know, what's the mechanism that restricts the 21 million cap? Um when you say because when you're when you're writing a professional report that's going to be read by other academics you can't just brush over topics because you know that such a controversial topic is going to get torn apart so questions like you know what makes it censorship resistant what makes the 21 million cap enforced um, what's what prevents the miners from taking over the network which was like a big concern at the time um, what's it used for, um, and uh, can it can it be regulated? Uh, what happens if another government tries to stop it? Is there any national security implications? And then it didn't take long; it took like about two months for me to get consumed entirely. So my rabbit hole story was really like writing this report for the gen- for other people, trying to explain it. And that's kind of been the the theme of my life in Bitcoin, which was this really big desire to vulgarize the topics and to explain it to other people. And in order to explain it to other people, I, I can't ever not know the answer. I'm very, very strict intellectually. Like I can't ever contradict myself. I can't ever brush over certain topics. I'm, I'm very into logic. So like every premise must be proven. You know, before you make an argument, the premises must be proven with evidence. So I just got completely consumed. And in November of 2013, you know, the price was bumping. And I was like, well, uh, and the guys at the Bitcoin embassy were like, hey, you know, since last time we talked, you know, we're worth like 10x more. (laughs) And then uh, how about we just hire you to become a full-time researcher for Bitcoin for the Bitcoin embassy? So instead of me working on Bitcoin projects at the Montreal Economic Institute, you know, part time, obviously, because I was working on healthcare and, and uh, you know, forestry and uh, pharma and other projects like Bitcoin was one of my four or five reports at the time. Like, fuck it. Let's get you focused on Bitcoin 100 percent. And then they hired me to become the public affairs director at the Bitcoin embassy. And my job was basically just to do that, to write these briefs, these reports, talk to the media, be the guy that shows up, you know, at the TV studio, be the guy that answers the journalists and uh, that is kind of a spokesperson, but also because there was, it wasn't only that there needed to be a spokesperson for Bitcoin. There also needed to just be someone who knew how to read and write like that. Can they, and and I, I say that with no disrespect, but to be honest, you know, we were a bunch of basement dwelling 
kind of <laughs> i mean it was it was a very pe- pe- peculiar type of person that was in bitcoin in 2013 that was a hardcore bitcoiner and we were very few people underestimate just how few we were and also i mean we were total complete aliens like the most people will never know what it's like to actually be in a society where you're a drug dealer if you're in bitcoin for sure like people for sure if you're in bitcoin you're a drug dealer there's no other way there's no other explanation and you were really ostracized um it's definitely not like today people would make fun of you openly um so the the kind of person that were into bitcoin right now they didn't want to be the person in front to do that you know they were social introverts so they, they you needed to have someone that was an extrovert to do that and also someone that had some understanding of uh, politics and media so obviously i was just the guy i mean i recognize that now i mean it was just i was definitely the right guy to do that so i'm really happy i did it because you know i was definitely the person for the job if i wanted to help bitcoin in any way there's nothing else i could have done than that um so so that's that's how that's my rabbit hole story and then you know, fast forward five years later, eventually, eventually I quit doing the education and lobbying and then I started my own business, but that's where the Twitter, that's where kind of the Twitter following comes from, I guess. Um, <laughs> this, this, uh, because I was, I started out professionally, like what pomp is doing today. If that's, you know, some people we may see like people like pomp or, uh, melt the mirrors or these kind of professional, Bitcoin activists that sometimes you don't know like what their job is, but they're always yeah. on TV and they're, they're always like speaking at a conference or something. This is true. Um, well, well, yeah, well, that was my job. That was, that was my, my original job. <laughs> and then, um, and then uh, the other thing that was very formative for me, which was my second rabbit hole, I think was I was still kind of clueless when I was doing that. So I was the kind of person that was, you know, still wearing a suit and a tie while I was, working at the Bitcoin embassy. And um, I was still pretty corporate, I guess, pretty traditional. But then eventually um, we had a, a physical office and it was a like a store. So you need to imagine like an app store. There's an actual big glass window wall and which is very, very large. I mean, this is the kind of thing that could easily host like a Zara store or an H and M store or like a Nike store, right? Like downtown. Oh my like, God. So it, it, it just, it just looks like a store. And then for a long time it, it was closed because we only, we had four stories high and we were just like 10 Bitcoiners in the whole thing. So <laughs> we were hanging out on the fourth floor in like, you know, the fourth floor had like 14 offices and we were just sharing like six offices um, there was a bunch of entrepreneurs and a bunch of like developers that were, that had the keys. Basically there was no, never like a, any membership or it was just like, if we like you, you can get a, a set of keys and then you can come work here. But then eventually we're like, we, we need to do something with this space. Like it's just ridiculous. We're just, it's overkill. So we're like, let's do a store. Let's do a physical Bitcoin store. So we did a physical Bitcoin store and I was the guy that was running the store. Um, and it started out not as a store, but as an information kiosk, which the concept was people would just walk in and ask questions about Bitcoin. And we had this like running hot desk where the Bitcoin people would kind of take turns at the hot desk. And whenever someone came in, you know, whatever it was they wanted, you know, I want to buy Bitcoin. What the fuck is this? 
I have a business. I want to accept it. And any question you can have, they would, you could come physically and talk to a person at the Bitcoin embassy. And it was a great, great thing. It was a fantastic thing because honestly, I'm not joking. I mean, I, I personally served multiple thousands of people. Like this was between the early 2014 and late 2017. Um, multiple thousands of people that I talked to um, per, like one-to-one. I'm not talking about like meetups, like one-to-one. And then eventually we started to sell Bitcoin because out of you know the most common question that people had of all time was how do I buy it? Like, or actually it was, can I buy some here? Can I buy some off of you now? Like, do you, can I give you 200 bucks for it, for some Bitcoin? And then, you know, eventually in the beginning we said, no, like we don't sell Bitcoin. We're just an information kiosk. We're just a nonprofit. We were a nonprofit. And they were like, how about if I pay you 5% more? I was like, well, no, it's just, how about 10% more? Oh, well, you know, it's 10%. Well, you know, okay. <laughs> just that makes sense. Cash and then, <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. And then that's how I got into business, actually. Like, it was just literally just overwhelmed by the demand for buying Bitcoin from me personally because people could see me, so they would trust me, right? Because they might, you know, if you're a Quebecer, you probably would recognize me because my face was all over the media. Like, I was in the newspaper. I was really like the Bitcoin dude. So, like, people trusted me. And then through this, what happened is like, I got to talk to the Bitcoin users firsthand, all of them, all of them, like <laughs> the sketchy ones, the prostitutes, the old greedy fuckers that are trying to hide Bitcoin under their mattresses from their wives, the young kids <laughs> that want to buy, you know, whatever online, the, the, the immigrants that want to send money back home and then they heard Bitcoin may be the good thing for them, the miners. The, the gold bugs, the zero hedge, Alex Jones, conspiracy types, all of them. Like, you know, there was also the the investors that didn't give a fuck about Bitcoin, but could see the charts going up. You know, so all of these people, I saw them all face to face. I had very deep conversations with them. You know, the ransomware victims, the all, all of these types of people. Um, so I, I got to really, I think, understand what Bitcoin was because I could understand who's using Bitcoin. Because if you're running a startup like in Silicon Valley or New York and you have this like, you know, online service and you got $30 million of VC and you got the best focus groups in the world and you got the best marketing people in the world. And they're telling you that this is the demographic, you know, like, you know, fuck all, like you have no idea. You have no idea who's using Bitcoin, you know, like overwhelmingly minorities, by the way, like in those days, like overwhelmingly non-technical savvy minorities and prostitutes. Like that was the early demographic of Bitcoin. Totally. So whenever I saw these, you know, smug, like wired magazines, like, oh, Bitcoin is for techno libertarians. You know, I'm like, you have no fucking clue. <laughs> like, no, no one, no one that I see on a, the, the, the amount of techno libertarians, the, te- the techno libertarians are the ones who are working in Bitcoin. Not the ones who are, you know, using Bitcoin. <laughs> you know, overwhelmingly they weren't. So that's, I mean, for those who are familiar with No2x and UASF and this whole thing, which I wasn't really big on Twitter before the user activated soft fork, which to make a long story short was this kind of civil war between the cypherpunk maximalist types and the corporate VC types. 
and I'm, 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 I'm really, you know, glossing over the complexity of this issue, but oh, yeah. let's just say it was, it was, you know, cypherpunks and maximalists, which won. So today the mainstream narrative is our narrative, but back in the day, the maximalist cypherpunk narrative, trust me, was minority. It was definitely a minority narrative. Um, and then, uh, I got involved because when I saw Coinbase and BitPay and blockchain info, talking about the users and representing the users and they're doing it for the users and the devs are doing it for abstract, you know, the devs don't know what they're talking about. We should listen to the businesses because they're in touch with the users. I was just like, Oh, I'm calling bullshit on that, by the way. Like, you know, I raise my hand and be like, uh, uh-uh. like you guys are lying. You guys are totally lying. Like I know the users, you don't know the users. I'm sorry. It doesn't matter if you have a hundred million users, and I only have a thousand, I've met that thousand. You haven't met a single one of your users. The, all the users that you've met were your employees. So shut up. <laughs> and then, uh, and then uh, uh, I was also on the Bitcoin Foundation board of directors at the time. So I became very, very kind of angry and, and vocal because as someone on the Bitcoin Di- Foundation board, uh, and I, I I actually got on the board of directors of the Bitcoin Foundation through a really weird series of events where people quit and they needed to have a, a board director like quickly because they needed like a board quorum. And then they just called me up and they're like, yo, we need a board director. Can you be a board director? And I didn't know what to say. So I just kind of said yes. And then I got sucked into the Bitcoin Foundation board like that. Um, the Bitcoin Foundation today doesn't really exist anymore. Um, but at the time, it was still kind of something relevant. Um, but being in that position, I got CC'd on all those kind of emails, you know, the SegWit 2X emails and like, you know, the industry groups and all these things. And I was like, kind of like the only one there. It was like, yo guys, what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> like, are you for real? Like, no, like, no, we're not going to do that. We're not going to, we're not going to raise the block size by t- 2X. No, that's, that's stupid. Like, no, Craig Wright is not Satoshi. What the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> so I was just like, oh my God, like this industry is, it, this, this industry is full of clueless people. And I didn't think, I didn't think it was that bad before. So, you know, there was no reason to be vocal, but then it was like, okay, so that, that's when I started to become very vocal. And then that's when the toxicity started to happen. Because <laughs> in, in those days, before that, it was a big kumbaya. Everybody was friends. Everybody was like, it's Bitcoin against the world. So, you know, it's us against them. If you're in Bitcoin, you're one of us. If you're not in Bitcoin, you're one of them. And then, you know, there was no shitcoin. It was alternative currencies still. It was, you know, the, the big, we were always maximalists at the Bitcoin embassy, but we were never really, because it, it hadn't done as much damage yet. You know, like it was still kind of a joke more than anything. The Bitcoin dominance had always been like 95%. So it wasn't even something we asked ourselves. Like before Ethereum, like the Bitcoin dominance was just crushing it since the beginning of time. Um, And then uh, so I became really kind of uh, disillusioned with the whole VC Silicon Valley group uh, or not group, just kind of... I call it VC Silicon Valley, but just call it like corporate Bitcoiners. Yeah. And then I, and I became very much, and I didn't know about cypherpunk principles. 
but in my gut, I knew there were, I knew about something like, and then I, I got into the cypherpunk rabbit hole later. And that's really where kind of everything opened my mind. Like after reading the old Nick Zabel stuff and after talking to, um, you know, the Blockstream people, which were in Montreal from time to time and we were hanging out, like I really got to understand this, this stuff. Um, so I really, you know, the kind of Twitter influence thing that I'm, that I'm in kind of stuck in now was really, and the thing is like, I think people, I have nothing to lose, you know, in a way I didn't, I never had a boss. I didn't have anything to lose. And I really very much care about Bitcoin. I think people can see that like, Oh yeah. You know, Bitcoin is my, is my entire life. Like there's, I've sacrificed everything in my life for Bitcoin. I mean, people will never know like the stuff that I had to, to let go of to, to dedicate everything for Bitcoin. And you know, there's no fucking way I'm going to let these, these douchebags, you know, take over Bitcoin. Like, yeah, I have too much. I have too much invested in this thing. Like my soul is invested in this. Like it's not a question of money. Like I'm a very good bartender, you know, like if, if Bitcoin goes to zero, I'll make a living. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> it's, it's not about that. Like I have other skills. It's just like I've invested my soul in this thing. And these people did not for no. sure. Yeah. So that's, that's, the, that's my, that's my story. And then, then, you know, uh, I think, uh, I, uh, I was able to make that attractive as a narrative because I have a way, I, I guess, of writing things, which smart people recognize as smart. So I, I think I, I appeal to, to people that are skeptical a lot and I write in a way, um, like, you know, it's hard to contradict me sometimes. Like when I write stuff, I usually write stuff in a way where my bases are intellectually covered. So instantly people, they try to think of a counter argument and they, they, they can't like, and, and it gets, it gets them to think a little bit deeper. Um, and then the final part was just the, you know, the, the maximalism against, or the, the, the crusade against shit coins was never my intention to, 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 to do that. But I really had a true epiphany, like an actual illumination. Um, one day I was, uh, I was already, I was, I was a maximalist before, but I was kind of a passive maximalist, you know? So a lot of people will say about maximalism. Um, it's, uh, it's descriptive, not prescriptive. So I'm not saying that you should not do shit coins. I'm saying that, uh, shit coins are going to lose and Bitcoin's going to win. So this is what I call descriptive maximalism. And that's how I was before. I was like, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna actively go against shitcoins because they're gonna go away on their own anyway. So I'm just gonna tell people that it is gonna happen and that's it. But then I had this weird thing that was always bothering me, which was uh, something founded and rooted in, in uh, Austrian economics, which is um, basically, the backdrop of that is like the theory of why money has value in Austrian economics is something called Mises regression theorem. Um, so you can Google that. It's actually a very easy to read Wikipedia entry for anyone that's interested. Mises regression theorem after Ludwig von Mises. And then essentially the concept is that, you know, people value the money because they believe that someone else will value it 
at an equal or greater amount in the future. There's nothing backing it. It's the expectation of future purchasing power. So the reason why you value your $5 now is because you believe that in the future, you're going to be able to buy $5 or more worth of stuff, which, which is, you know, makes total sense. But then I started to think more and more about why is that not a Ponzi scheme? Yeah. Like, why is that not a pyramid scheme? Because I was working in currency exchange. So I knew for a fact that foreign currency exchanging was a Ponzi because normally in economics, a, a trade, a commercial trade is win-win. Yeah. You know, I, it doesn't matter if I got screwed on something or whatever, like retroactively, you know, it's like, you know, sure that, that pizza is that, you know, that caviar pizza is 150 bucks and that's the scam. It, sh- it, sh- it shouldn't be 150. It should be 40 bucks, but I value it 150 bucks. I'm getting 150 bucks worth of value, you know, at that time, that's not a scam, right? Every trade is, as long as the information is, um, is correct. As, as long as there's no fraud, right? It's, it's a win-win ethical trade. And I was really, and, and this was after reading Nassim Taleb's um, Skin in the Game book. But even before the, the Skin in the Game book, I was reading the Skin in the Game blog post of Nassim Taleb way before, like a year and a half before. And I really g- got interested in this strong concept of ethics, um, partly because at the Bitcoin embassy, I saw so many people lose money on shitcoins that I really became concerned about the ethics of Bitcoin, the ethics of the industry. And I felt... I felt kind of ashamed of being part of this crypto industry um, that that was causing people to lose money on shitcoins and not speaking against it. I felt kind of complicit in a way. Uh, like if, if you see something and you don't call it out, you're kind of complicit. But then I realized, and this is kind of like crazy, but I was like, so why is Bitcoin not, a, if, the, if all the other ones are Ponzi schemes or py- pyramid schemes rather, why is Bitcoin not a pyramid scheme? And then why is currency in general not a pyramid scheme? Every currency is a pyramid scheme because if the value of a currency is only dependent upon the fact that someone else will buy it in the future, that's the definition of a pyramid scheme. So why is, it, why is Bitcoin not a pyramid scheme? And then I realized Bitcoin is not a pyramid scheme because one day there will be only Bitcoin and money is inherently a pyramid scheme unless there is only one. And that's kind of tough to wrap your head around, but money is only a pyramid scheme if there is only one. That means that if you cannot sell your money for any other money, it is not a pyramid scheme. It's when you can only use your money to purchase goods and services that it becomes not a pyramid scheme. Because if you trade money for money, there's a winner and a loser. Whoever buys the money who's going to lose, like as long as there's there's 100% of every single Forex trade is win-lose. There has never been a Forex trade in history where both people won. That's impossible because the Forex rate moves against the other. So if you buy USD for CAD, the next day, one of them, one of the two is going to be higher. The other one of them is going to be lower. Someone's going to win. Someone's going to lose for sure. And a win-lose trade is unethical. So then I realized, shit, money is unethical. It's not money that's unethical. It's the, the coexistence of multiple monies because the natural order of things is that the bad monies disappear over time and it's kind of a uh, it's the it's the cost of experimentation right it's the 
the cost of the cost of it's it's a temporary evil. We're trying to experiment on what's the right form of money, and this causes a lot of pain, right? It's like um like uh, evolution, you know, uh, for ev- for for a species to evolve, multiple people need to die, multiple. Uh, uh, animals and plants need to die for for the plant to evolve. That is the that is the the requirement of evolution is that there's suffering and pain. There's this really amazing quote by Darwin about you know the the ev- evolution is you know a great cemetery of pain and death, you know, and progress is progress is an endless uh, basically something like progress is an endless uh, mass grave of corpses, but at some point, we should stop trying to do this experimentation because the, the casualties of monetary experimentation are unnecessary. There's no need to experiment. Like, that's why the gold standard was so good because when we had the gold standard and everything was based in gold and settled in gold and valued in gold, we didn't need to experiment on all these alternative types of currencies where there was winners and losers. That's what causes distortions in, in the economy is that instead of just experimenting on the product you're creating or the service you're creating or the innovation you're doing or the new process you're inventing for making things faster and more efficient and you know save people time in their daily lives, instead of experimenting on that, you're experimenting, you're experimenting on that and experimenting on the money that people are using, forcing that experiment on others, and ex- you're externalizing the cost of the experiment on people who are not willing participants to the experiment. And as far as that concerned, so essentially my whole theory revolved around the idea that it's not only inevitable that Bitcoin is the winner, but it's right. And it's not right that Bitcoin is the winner, it's right that there's only one winner. and. Every minute where there is still a competition of currencies is a waste because inevitably it will go to one winner, but there is needless suffering in the meanwhile. And then I I started to perceive and conceive as shitcoins as being this kind of needless prolongation of this kind of, I don't know how to say it, it's just kind of suffering right and also because the shit corners themselves don't have the soul in the game and skin in the game they may have reputation they may have skin in the game but they don't have soul in the game and whether or not the shit coin survives all of them are holding bitcoin like all of them are holding bitcoin and i know that i know that as a fact like all the shit corners the influencers are bitcoin heavy much more than the maximalists like People would be surprised at how broke most maximalists are compared to <laughs> the shitcoin peddlers. Okay, so then the the whole the whole toxicity was really just like let's let's stop pretending that it's good to experiment. I mean, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna force people to stop doing shitcoin stuff. I'm still a libertarian. Like I don't believe in forcing other people, but I'm 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 not I'm not I I don't want to be passive against that. I want to be actively actively promoting promoting the demise of shitcoins. I think that this, the sooner all of these things explode and go away, 
um, the more people are going to save. There's no, there's no need to experiment. Like we, we know what works, we know what doesn't work. So I just, it's very self-serving for the shitcoin peddlers to promote the concept of experimentation. But I don't think it's necessary, right? I, th I think Bitcoin is way too far ahead for like no one in his right mind believes that any of his shitcoins is actually going to take over Bitcoin. No, no one believes that. No like, way. No one believes it. So if if you don't believe it, like why are you still doing your shitcoin stuff? Like there's there there's only one logical conclusion to get more Bitcoin. Exactly. <laughs> it, that's that's exact. That's exactly it. And then that's and people that are noobs they don't see the difference between those people and us they don't no. you know they, they they see us as one homogenous class of bitcoin influencers and then when shit hits the fan i don't want to be on the hook you know ethically and morally for those people i want to separate myself from them as much as possible like i'm actually hedging myself against against that like I'm, i want to hedge my reputation against that yeah, it's also self-serving because I know I know that people are gonna get wrecked again. Oh yeah, and it's happened to me once before. You know, when I was at the Bitcoin Embassy, and there was the first. You know, people forget about Aurora Coin and Pure Coin and Feather Coin and you know all of these coins. They were very popular coins. Name Coin. Name Coin. <laughs> I was just thinking that. And <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then you know they showed up to the Bitcoin Embassy. Like I saw people crying for real. Like I saw people for real crying. Oh yeah, I saw. I, there's, there's like one instance, specific instance that really, really traumatized me, which was a grandmother, and this was like 2015, right? Like, may, maybe even 2014. I'm not even sure. Like, it was long, long, long time ago. <clears throat> a grandmother whose grandchild had emptied her bank account to buy a shitcoin, which was probably something that you know, Mona Coin or Feather Coin, like some really obscure something that's not like she's not in the green right now right there, there, you know she's Poor every, thing. everyone that bought that coin is in the red for sure like today and then you know like if it was bitcoin i would have been able to reassure her and help her and try to rationalize that for her but then if it's a shit coin you're just like you know you're fucked and then <laughs> You, you know, I'm sorry. There's not, there, there's like, I don't know what to tell you, ma'am. And then she's like, well, aren't you like, isn't this the, the head office of the coin? Like, and then what? you're like, you, you know, you can't really explain to a person who just lost their wealth, the, uh, you know, the intricacies of the whole thing. Like she, she's not interested in, in understanding that, no, actually it's a fork of Bitcoin, which, you know, they took the software, they modified it and it's a new, ch like they don't, they don't, they don't understand that or care about that. You know, in their mind, it's just like, isn't this the coin place? Like, aren't you the coin person? And then um, that's that's gonna happen again, right? And they're gonna they're gonna. But that's why I like this, you know, this maximalist movement, which was very reactionary. You know, it was reactionary to the exuberance of the shitcoin pump of 2017, which is like, it's about seizing the moral high ground once again. You know, and if people look at the public discourse, they're gonna instantly know that the Bitcoin people are honest and they've, you know, they're, they're, they've been very, very aggressively uh, in active prevention mode to, to like the, the Bitcoin maximalists have one thing in common is that 
they genuinely do care about the noobs, you know, not making mistakes. Like they really, really care. And I think it's great because like having the moral high ground is very important because the battle of Bitcoin versus fiat is a battle of will. It's really a battle of will, right? It's a game of chicken against the government, against the, the largest forces ever assembled. It's, it's, it's truly a battle of resolve. And you can't, you can't have resolve in the face of the Bank of International Settlements and the U.S. Fed and, and um, the IMF and all these big institutions. You can't have resolve is if you're conflicted ethically and morally. Like as soon as you're conflicted, you're weak. You know, you show you show weakness, and you are weak. You, in order to be resolved, you need to be a hundred percent convinced that you are right. And the way to do, the best way to do that is to signal that you know very strongly to others, and to make zero compromises. Because when the time comes, like this whole maximalist thing, as far as I'm concerned, is just like a big warrior chant. It's like a big haka. You know what I mean? We're, <laughs> Absolutely. We're just, trying to pump, we're just trying to pump ourselves up to make sure we're right. You know, we're we're strong, and then because eventually it's gonna stop being signaling, and it's gonna turn you know crazy. And then I'm pretty stoked because I'm not at all scared of the confrontation that's gonna happen in Bitcoin. I'm not at all scared because of the maximalist kind of narrative having taken over. Because you know, I'm. I know now that there's actually people that are out there that are attracted. It's a almost a romantic notion, you know. A hundred percent opposed to bullshit. A hundred percent opposed to this asymmetry of information, of abusing, uh, abusing the power of the internet to screw other people over, and like. I have absolutely zero doubt that I'm going to, you know, it's going to be very crowded on the front lines of Bitcoin with very, very good people on all sides. And I think a lot of early Bitcoin maximalists and are very happy also because the pressure, the, the pressure on the Bitcoiners is getting, you know, as more people join in that are as resolved as you, you feel less pressure to dedicate yourself to Bitcoin fully. Right. So, you know, personally, for example, I'm pretty, I'm, I'm pretty close to taking a sabbatical year, you know, for the first time in seven years. I feel very happy with the way the community has kind of evolved. And I genuinely feel like I'm no longer needed. You know, it's, it's very refreshing. I'm like, there's so many people out there that they're speaking and I'm like, yo, you could be me. <laughs> like, I'm so stoked. <laughs> like, you know, I, I don't, I don't have to show up every day to point out the bullshit everywhere like i don't have to because other people are doing it and i mean it's been it's been like that since honestly since like early 2017 you know late 2016 it just kind of exploded and now you know probably a bunch of your listeners are into bitcoin after those those times and um you know that's that's great like all the all the people that have been joining in they kind of caught on to this maximalist cyberpunk narrative they understood it and they've internalized it, which is great because it's the right narrative. I mean, and it's such a question of narrative. It's just right, you know, like maximalism and cypherpunk is just objectively the right thing. I have zero doubt in my mind. There's no, there's no subjectivity in it. There's no, 
there's no compromise there's no middle ground you know maybe it's the right thing is somewhere in between no it's not like it's it's the full-on maximalism and cypherpunk ethos is right and you know i think people see that now I'm going to stop talking now because as I told you before <laughs> the podcast started, like literally I warned you against that. I know. But, uh, but so I'll take your questions now. <laughs> but I, I find, I, I got to be honest, I find your, your story so absolutely interesting that I, I, I couldn't stop you. I, I really couldn't <laughs> I know, because, because it, like just, just when I think I'm like, okay, you know what? He, he's, he's about to, uh, he's about to stop and like, ask me if, uh, if I have anything and it's like, and then, and then you end up having like another piece of the story, you know, like, you know, like a spokesperson for BTC and, you know, the libertarian meetups and, you know, doing the, like, I didn't know that the, um, uh, that the Bitcoin embassy was a building on the corner of, uh, St. Lawrence and Sherbrooke. I had no clue, you know, like it's I, crazy. So it's it's there's there's actually a really amazing video you can look up, which is uh, by Reason Magazine. If you know about Reason Magazine, which is kind of a libertarian publication, they did a video like people can just go on YouTube and Google like uh, and look up Bitcoin Embassy Montreal, and it's quite quite nuts. Okay, so I have I mean from what you talked about, the, there was two things at the beginning that stood out that I wanted to ask you. Um, one of them was because you mentioned Hayek, so obviously I'm 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 assuming that you read the Road to Serfdom, um, yes. And that I mean I I recently I, I recently read it, and I I guess I just I want to know how like right or wrong my takeaway was or how far off I am, but my main takeaway from that book from what Hayek was explaining was that essentially. Because of because of incentives and because of the way that we organize our resources, we are always destined to pull towards socialism. Like I know well, I'm summarizing a lot of information into one sentence, but I, I always I like I felt like yes. he he would always no, pull no, back no, to you're, that. You're, you're correct. That that we you're, always you're, do you're, this bad thing that that we can't help it almost. I, I, absolutely, and this is this, for example, this is why. The U.S. Constitution, for example, is such an important thing, right? Because people's tendencies are towards socialism always because the the minority of people objectively are, are contributing more than the majority of people. So it's always in the interest of the majority, the short-term interest of the majority to take over what the smaller minority is doing. This is why, for example, the as I said, the, the U.S. Constitution is such a big thing, but also the role to serve them it's not necessarily about the innovative inevitability of socialism because of the way that society organizes and we the, the fact that we cannot transcend i mean it's not inevitable because you know one of the arguments against the inevitability of socialism is technology right because historically the cost of violence has been very very low Right, the cost of exerting violence on others has been extremely low, and in order to defend your property rights, for example, like property rights, could never be defended without having a government. Like, which it's like a, a paradox of property rights. Like, in order to protect your property rights, you need to have a government that will have a police force, that will have courts, and that will have an army to defend your property rights. And then, if, in, inevitably, whoever has the power of that will start to increase its power over time because and 
maybe a better art, maybe a better theoretical framework for this because Hayek's world to serve them isn't necessarily, I guess, uh, a blueprint on how this happens. I think the the best blueprint is something called public choice theory, which explains how and why bureaucratic interests grow, right? How the state grows, and which portrays, for example, the interests of the state and the bureaucracy as being an economic calculus, and that it's always like a small minority which has control of power will always, always be able to pull off taking from the majority because in order to, for example, let's say that you have 1% of people in order to, in, and they can, they can take $1 from every single person and give themselves a hundred bucks. So for them, it's very worth it to exert this power because they get a hundred bucks. But for, for the 99%, for example, it's not worth it to resist because you're only losing $1. Yes. So you're fighting against someone that's going to gain 100 bucks, and you only have $1 to lose. You're not going to, for example, you're not going to go protest if you're losing $7 a year more because of some tax. But if you're like an interest group that's fighting for, I don't know, a uh, billion dollars more of allocated budget to this general cause, you're you're going to go protest every single weekend, right? That's that's just like a, an, an inevitability. And there's also something about, you know, this is touching on what I said regarding this kind of incremental change, which is impossible. Like a, a good way to put it is that regulation is like a ratchet. It only goes one way. Like it's incredibly huh. easy... To, it's incredibly easy to remove freedom, but it's incredibly difficult to to gain more freedom, right? Like all of these, it's like death by a thousand cuts, right? And there's this really, really great quote by uh, Alexander Tugville. I think I'm. I wanna. I wanna find it uh, really quickly here. Oh yeah. Um, It's one of my favorite quotes of all time. Uh, there we go. Uh, about Alexander de Tocqueville, which was uh, a French philosopher writing about American um, American society. And he talks about the state and he talks about this kind of new despotism, right? Because in those days, like he's writing this in 1840. And in those days, the the despotism and, and um, oppression that they knew about was the king was the emperor. It was a very visible, a very straightforward thing, right? You got this one guy that has all the power. And then Tugville saw this coming, right? This thing that I was describing, this kind of like slow quicksand of more and more oppression through a thousand cuts that you you, you think you might sw- be able to swim up, but you can't. You need to, you need to exit, right? You can't it's like you can't change the system from within. It doesn't work. You need to to exit the system, and to let it collapse. Like the and you know as a as a my favorite analogy for Bitcoin is a lifeboat. It's just a lifeboat, right? It's like the Titanic is sinking, and you know there's no way that you can stop that that flow of water from coming in. There's no way. The only thing you can do is get on the other boat. You know, escape. And then start a, start anew, right? So this is a quote from Alexander Tocqueville. He's talking about this new despotism, right? The new soft despotism. 
the government. And he says, after thus having taken each individual one by one into its powerful hands and having molded him as it pleases, the sovereign power extends its arms over the entire society. It covers the surface of society with a network of small, complicated, minute, and uniform rules, which the most original minds and the most vigorous souls cannot break through to go beyond the crowd. It does not break the wills. It softens them. It bends them and directs them. It rarely forces action, but it constantly oppresses your acting. It does not destroy, but it prevents birth. It does not tyrannize. It hinders, it represses, it enervates, it extinguishes, it stupefies. And finally, it reduces each nation to being nothing more than a flock of timid and industrial animals of which the government is the shepherd. Right. So, so wow. this is this is this is my philosophy. This is like it's true. Slowly, <laughs> it, it's so true, you know. And it this is. is 1840. This is 1840. You know, he he saw it coming. It's like we're not. There's no. There, you know, people say, "Oh, what what are you talking about? Oppression of the state?" You know, oh, this isn't a. You know, we're living they, in the greatest. It's true, we're living in the greatest times. But they just don't see the prison walls. You know, like it's they they just don't yeah. see the walls. It, it's it's you know what I always say this right. The best prisoner is the one that demands its own shackles. Right, right, no, totally, totally, exactly. And then and then there's also my favorite economist is um, because because Hayek is kind of like the intellectual foundation for modern Austrian economics. Um, but my favorite philosopher is actually uh, very likely one of the influences of Hayek. Uh, the influencers of Hayek, sorry, which is uh, Frédéric Bastia, which is a French philosopher and economist. I identify with him very much because his his style of writing, he was like a, a, a troll, right? In uh, the 18, uh, again, he was in the 1850s, writing in 1830s, 1850s in France, but he was a troll. So he was <laughs> writing in the newspaper these satirical articles, making fun of other politicians. Um, but he was very, very clever, uh, very smart. And then he has this theory of what is seen and what is unseen. And his main kind of concept is the, there's, you know, the, the good economist uh, sees the unseen effect, whereas the bad economist sees the seen effects. I'll give you an example. You know, um, if you tax everyone a hundred bucks, you gain three billion. And then with that three billion, like in the States, for example, you, you create, you invest in manufacturing and you create 10,000 jobs. So the, the effect is, oh my God, we created 10,000 jobs. But what you don't see is what would have happened if that hundred bucks would have stayed in everyone's pockets. Everyone would have been a hundred bucks richer. That money would have been spent, invested. And there's, there might be 30,000 jobs that have been created, but we can't specifically point to them. So whatever it is that you can point to is always what ends up being what people see and what, but, you know, things that you cannot see, you, you cannot point to as an example. So, you know, if you say, if you say, you, you know, like we're, we're in a big prison, it, it might be comfortable now, right? Look at what we've achieved. It's, we're so comfortable. We got great healthcare. We got, 
this great society. Everything's like, what we're talking about fiat is shit. You know, look at the standard of living. It's, it's I agree. I mean, we, we have the best standing. The world has never done better. But I think like if we had been on the gold standard for all this time, we would be on the moon right now. We yes. would for sure be on Mars. Like we would for sure be on the Citadel in space. And who knows, we might be mining Europa right now. Like I have no idea. Like you have no idea, right? Like so so this is the unseen part of this whole thing. And like this is why, you know, for, for me, Bitcoin is like the ultimate fuck you. You know, that's that's why I like it so much, is because like we're not stuck into this mentality of slow incremental change with Bitcoin, which does not work. The ratchet, you cannot fight the ratchet. You know, it's really, it's really like we need to exit and then let the system get destroyed because we have this way to rebuild. It's not a catastrophe. If the economy collapses, it's not a catastrophe. It will be harsh, but it's not a catastrophe. It's going to rebuild really quickly. Like people are, I think will like once the, and I firmly, firmly believe that we're heading for the greatest financial collapse of all time. Like yep. firmly, I am hundred percent convinced. There's no doubt in my mind that, you know, Real estate prices will crash by 80%. People will not even believe that their house is worth 20% of what it was worth. They will not even understand that this is something that's possible. There will be absolute shattering of, the, of people's expectations regarding the economy. But I think it's going to be very temp. I think it's not going to take a long time for people to recover because and my hope is that this happens later, that it's delayed. Right? I, th- I want it to be delayed. I used to be an accelerationist, but I don't. I don't want to be an accelerationist anymore because I think Bitcoin is too immature to be the savior of the world right now. And I really do believe that there's no other option. So I'd rather wait and Bitcoin get stronger for the economy to collapse because when it collapses, people are going to need an alternative and Bitcoin is not ready right now. I think from a technology and just general ecosystem standpoint, I think we've got a few years to go before we can onboard, you know, hundreds of millions and billions of people, but I think it's definitely hundred percent going to happen. And it's almost, um, and this is, this is also why I'm so maximalist is because in terms of Bitcoin adoption, like nobody can, I, I, honestly, I, I don't mind saying that. Like, no, nobody can question my creds in, in terms of Bitcoin adoption. And, like I've literally spent three years sitting at a desk, like onboarding people to Bitcoin. Okay. I've done my, I've done my, my rounds as so to speak. And then I used to be the guy like Roger Ver. I used to be like him, you know, like we need to get every single one of, of we, we need to get mass adoption of Bitcoin right now. That was my, my, my main philosophy. That was like my goal in life was to get everybody on board Bitcoin as soon as possible. But then I realized, and this, this like my, my biggest personal influencers are Pierre Richard and um, um, Michael Goldstein um, from the Nakamoto Institute. And there's this one specific quote from Pierre Richard this one quote, which absolutely just blew me away when I understood it, which was people will get into Bitcoin because they need to eat. Yep. Right. Right. People will adopt Bitcoin because they need to eat. That's it. Right. So ultimately that's what matters. Right. It's like, you, you don't need to sell this thing, right? This thing sells itself because like, do you want to eat or do you want to not eat? Well, yeah, most people want to survive. So if Bitcoin helps them survive, there's no need to like, you know, there's no, there's no life jacket salesman on a sinking ship. 
there's there's no marketing required for your life jacket you know people just they're, they're lining up you know they're, they're they're lining up for it you know they want it you know all they care about is do you have some <laughs> so, so so that's uh that, that's that was that's the philosophy so what is there to do between now and then if you're if you're not promoting the mass adoption of bitcoin i mean well i i promote the mass adoption of bitcoin to people i like because i want them like because i care to people i care about right so if i care about someone i'm gonna want to get them into bitcoin because i want them to be you know objectively i don't mind saying it's just rich you know more rich i mean i'm not in it for the money but objectively it's just math you know it's like if you know bitcoin takes off it's cheaper now for you it's like the idea is not the idea of, of profit in bitcoin is not to buy it now and sell it later at higher price you know that's the main difference between the bitcoiner yeah and the shit corner right because you bought a bitcoiner buys bitcoin today because it's cheaper for him to buy it now than for his future self to buy it in the future right i can buy more bitcoin for myself today then my future self can buy Bitcoin in the future. So I might as well buy it now. I'm not planning it on selling it to anyone in the future, but I do want to have twice as much more purchasing power to buy vacation, to buy a house, to buy whatever. So I'm not looking to dump it for Canadian dollars and have this win-lose trade. I'm looking to accumulate more, to have more win-win trades in the future. That's like the huge difference between the Bitcoiner in my mind and the shit corner. And this is why I think Bitcoin maximalism and the idea of hodling is really cool, right? And so the, the I think the, the, the other piece of literature or philosophy which is most influential was uh, introduced to me by Michael Goldstein. So thank you very much, Michael, for... <laughs> and when I was doing the podcast, actually, on Noted, I had never heard about this until Noted. When Michael asked me, have you ever heard about this, this story? And he said something like, you must have read the the um, Isaiah's job. And I said, no, I haven't read Isaiah's job. What is that? He says, oh, just go read it as soon as we're done this interview. And then I read it and I was like, holy fuck. I'd never read anything in my life that resonated so much with the way I was thinking, almost in a way where I couldn't believe that I hadn't read it. Like I felt almost as if I, I was cheating. I was like, I was like, whoa, like, all of the ideas that I thought I had actually are from this this short story, and the the general. Co- co- have you heard about the concept of the remnant? No. Have you like if if you if you if you go on Twitter and like you search like Bitcoin and remnant, you'll see it kind of as a obscure kind of a insider's reference among some Bitcoin maximalists, and the idea of the remnant is basically you shouldn't appeal to the masses because the masses have nothing to contribute, right? And you should appeal to the remnant. And there is such a thing as a remnant. And the remnant is a small category of people that are through the strength of their character, the, the, their, their, their moral fortitude, their, you know, through whatever faculty they have, they're like worthy, you know, they're, they're the people that are going to rebuild society when all this shit hits the fan. They are the elite, but not in a, not in a like, you know, 1% yeah, or you know, prep school sense. They're, they're like, I, I guess they're, they have 
what I would call the, the, the highest ethics and highest values and highest morals, and also the natural talents to express them into creative forces in, in the world, right? And then these are the people that you want. But those people, you will never know who they are. You, they will never manifest themselves. But if you speak on your soapbox, they will hear you. Yes. And it's enough that they hear you, right? And like, and these people, if you dilute your message to, to aim for the mass man, you will lose those people. They will smell the bullshit on you from a billion miles away. And they'll be like another bullshitter. You know, they're, 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 they're very cynical people. They think that everything sucks. They think everything's bullshit. And then they don't want, they're, 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 they are not receptive to sales pitches at all. But if you are absolutely non-compromising, they will, they will kind of click, you know, they'll be like, Oh wait, what? Like, you know, you know what I mean? They'll just kind of slowly, it's going to pique their attention. And then they're going to, they're going to kind of latch onto this discourse and start to dig, dig, dig in. And then little do you know, don't you, but like a year later, they're, you know, wink, wink, they're podcast hosts, you know what I mean? <laughs> or they're, or they're working for a Bitcoin company or they're doing this or that, or they're donating funds to this initiative or they're, they're, they quit their job. They're learning how to code. And then, so like my, I've really become to the philosophy where I don't want radical. Uh, I don't want mass adoption. I want radicals. I want to radicalize. I want two things. I want to radicalize the existing builders in the ecosystem. I want to make them more radical. I want to make them more, more involved. I want, I want, I want people that have skin in the game to have soul in the game. So radicalize the existing base that is building the system because they're already here. And then the second thing that I want is to attract the top talent to Bitcoin that has resources. So people that are wealthy, I won't, I'm not shy about saying that. I want people that are wealthy, not just people that are wealthy, but if I want to attract wealthy people, and I want to attract smart people, so people with intellectual resources. I want to attract people with talent, right? Whatever the t- if they're good, good uh, programmer, good lawyer, good entrepreneur, good UX designer. I want to attract the top talent, and I want to attract people with resolve and ethics and morals, right? The people that have the good ethics, I want them to be there because ultimately, like Bitcoin, Bitcoin is a social consensus, like. Of course, I've, I've got into the code and aspect part of Bitcoin since many years. I'm now, you know, develop, you know, I, I started to code. I'm contributing code to, to CypherNode, my open source project. But ultimately, I understand that, you know, Bitcoin is a, refl- is a consensus of individuals. It's a social consensus. So, like, Bitcoin takes the shape of its early adopters. Because as time goes on, Bitcoin becomes ossified. It becomes harder to change. So it's very, very important that before Bitcoin becomes ossified, the people, it's still possible to change Bitcoin in a way, right? It's still possible to change the course of Bitcoin. Like at some point, Bitcoin will be too big to, to, to divert from its course. But even in 2020, I think, bit, you know, there's some privacy battles that, that are coming up. You know what I mean? Like yep. people, there's still, there's still some things that could go wrong for the trajectory of Bitcoin. And 
to me, the, the most important thing in the world is that the bull doesn't change direction. Like that, that's, it doesn't matter how fast we go. It only matters how straight we're going. That's true. That's a very good point. Francis, man, it's been, it, it's absolutely just flown by, man. We, we've been on for like an hour and 15 minutes. I, I, I warned you. <laughs> I warned you before. That's awesome though. Um, actually, you know what, uh, be, before we go, do you, do you have any, I mean, do you have any final thoughts that you want to give the listeners? I feel like, I feel like you've said everything there is to say, but, uh, you know, if you've got anything. No, I mean, to, I like this kind of conversations, you know, uh, I, uh, you know, this, the, this is just the really candid me. Uh, there's a, uh, it's just free flow. So I don't really have much to add. Um, <laughs> Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm happy people listen. It's, it's gratifying to know. I just, I'll just say one thing, which is like, it's very, very gratifying for me to know that people listen to me. Um, when people meet me in person they're it's, it's always weird to me that they're like, Oh my God, like, you know, you're so approachable or whatever. Like, I'm just a regular guy. I mean, I, I just, the only thing that I really have going for me is like, I have a very good talent at writing good tweets that resonate with people. <laughs> right? I'm just, I'm just a, a regular Joe. Uh, and uh, uh, I, I don't, I'm always mind blown. Like people recognize me at conferences. Like I, I, I j I'm just starting to get used to it now. Like people taking photos with me. I'm like, what the fuck is this going on? <laughs> no, I think you're Come on, guys. Um, but yeah, I just, I just really appreciate the feedback. Um, and I really appreciate when people like my tweets, I really appreciate when people comment on my tweets. Um, I, I'm never bothered when people DM me at all. Uh, and you know, I just don't, don't be like, don't be shy to talk to me at all. Um, I love helping people with their problems. Uh, a lot of people like are confiding me and I, I really like that. So if you have a, if you have a project or if you have a, you know, you're looking some, for some advice or if you just want to say, Hey, like, I like your stuff. Uh, just please do that. I mean, I, I really do enjoy it and it makes it all worth it for me. Um, because my, my Twitter feed is a very, you know, one, one directional thing. Like I just spew things out and I'm never really sure if people are listening or not. So it's always fun to get that feedback. So definitely enjoy it and don't be shy and come talk to me. I'll put uh, I'll put your contact details in the show notes. Yeah, yeah, totally, totally. So thank you so much for having me. I mean, it's it's been a lot of fun. I haven't been on a podcast for a while. So uh, I really enjoy uh, sharing my passion. And uh, I hope uh, I'm motivating other people to get more radical about Bitcoin. Cool. Thank you so much for being on. Right, it's my pleasure, man. I hope everybody enjoyed my discussion with uh, with Francis. I, uh, I I definitely, although I knew quite a bit about him, there there was a lot of stuff I didn't know um, about you know his background and everything and his master's degree. So that was really cool. Um, anyways, uh, his contact information will be in the show notes. As for me, as always, if you want to contact me, you can just reach out to me on Twitter or Telegram. I'm at Coin Icarus. Uh, if you want to support the show, you can head on over to moetarags.com and go to All Clothing and the Fun with Bitcoin podcast. And you can take a look at our swag and pick some up. 
if you want to go and check out our past material or any kind of you know interesting links or you know stuff that uh, you know stuff that I think is cool, you can head on over to funwithbitcoin.com. All right, everyone. Thanks for listening, and I'll catch you next time.